Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bible today, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 9, although there are a few short verses from Genesis printed on page 10 that I also want to read. First, Genesis chapter 2, well-known verses. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of the life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, Proverbs 9, I'm going to read through verse 18, not verse 8. And you'll hear about two ladies here. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She's mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I've mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gives himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Don't reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, he'll be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat in the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but he does not know that the dead are there, and her guests are in the depths of Sheol. This is the word of the Lord. And we pray for your gracious blessing with it, Lord, in Jesus' good name. Amen. So why am I preaching a series titled Mere Humanity? to our younger saints, to our younger Christians. I can imagine someone saying, well, you know, I don't know why you're talking about humanity to our young disciples. Shouldn't we be talking about mere Christianity? You know, we don't want our, we don't want our second, third, fourth generation to grow up just being, you know, strong humans. We want them to be strong Christians, don't we? You know, that question... That, that very question reflects the mindset that I'm trying to dislodge in this series. And I'm, I've called it a few times, you've heard this before, but I, I'm going to keep calling it this because I think it works. I, the, the mindset I'm trying to dislodge in this series is what I call the Jesus app model of Christianity. And the Jesus app model, it's all over the church today. It is a, doing a huge disservice to our younger generation. The Jesus app model of Christianity is that human life is just human life. You know, we're all humans, we're just kind of doing our human thing, and that's just being human. And we Christians are different because we add the Jesus app. 
You know, we add prayer, we add Bible reading, we add Sunday worship, we add witnessing about Jesus, we follow certain Bible rules, you know, that's part of the Jesus app. We get ready for heaven, obviously that's a big part of the Jesus app. And I have seen some, so many ways in which that model can just go so very wrong. One, that I don't really expect probably would apply so much here, people can end up becoming what I call app-inclusivists. And they're like, you know what, you know, we, we Christians, we, we run the Jesus app. We have the Jesus app. But other people, you know, that, that's what, that does it for us. But other people, you know, they run different apps. So at the end of the day, if, you know, my app's bringing good things to my life and your app's bringing good things to your life, can't we all just kind of get along? What's the big deal? Kind of inclusivism with our apps. Others, interestingly, this is kind of what I grew up in, become app exclusivists because they kind of register at some point, this is the Jesus app, people. <laughs> What are you doing running anything else on your phone? You should be running that Jesus app all the time. That should be the only app I use. I mean, it's the Jesus app, right? It's, you know, what has to do with going to, to glory and, you know, being in heaven eventually. And it's a big deal. So just run that app all the time. You should, you know, you're a young person. You, you, should, you should go to Bible school and then maybe even on to some other kind of like further training for full-time Christian ministry and preferably end up on the mission field. I mean, it's really second rate to end up doing anything else. But way more common than either of those two, inclusivists or exclusivists, I find are app dualists. Christians who run the Jesus app when it's time to do the Jesus thing, but Jesus really doesn't have anything to do with all the other apps. He certainly, I know this really is an appalling metaphor I'm using, but he certainly is not the owner of the whole phone that is your life. It's not that all of you is all of his. This is the kind of Sunday Christianity that so very easily happens. And it's interesting, Jacques Ellul in his book, The Presence of the Kingdom, goes after this very powerfully, and he says that's exactly what Jesus Christ calls hypocrisy. It means giving up any attempts to live out your religion in the world. This dissociation of our life into two spheres, the one spiritual, the Jesus app, the other where we behave like other people, that's the whole rest of the phone. That is one of the reasons, he says, why the churches have so little influence on the world, unquote. And what I'm trying to sort of push in this series is that Jesus saves our humanity in its entirety, in its totality. That's what Jesus is after. Not just giving you hell insurance to go to heaven, not just you know, being one app in your life that you run on Sunday mornings or in your prayer closet. Jesus wants the whole thing. You know, Abraham Kuyper's thing, there's not a square inch of the cosmos, not a square inch of your humanity. Jesus has not claimed for himself. And so what I began by saying to, to you who are young, but it's true for all of us, that you, God made human beings to live between his word and his world. That's, where, that's just being human, to live between God's word and his world. But I realized I was thinking about this week, already I may have created the idea that there's sort of two separate compartments here, and that's not at all what I mean. When I say that God made us, that being human is just living between the word and the world, I mean that God made us to live in both of those, fully immersed in both of those, all the time. Fully in the word, fully in the world, all the time. You are made, you and I are made to learn and love and live the word of God in everything we do, everywhere in the world. That's the Jesus way. Our whole humanity, individual, social, work, worship, all of it, in living fellowship with the living God. And so what I picked in this series is 12 pieces from the game board of human life. And I just want to hear the word about each of these, hear God's word about each of them, and then talk together about how to play these pieces in the real game of life in the world 
in ways that bring the fullness of life that God wants for us. Well, today, you know, we've talked about the ear, we've talked about the heart, two pieces, and now we're on number three. And early in Proverbs, you can, you can see it here, as God, through Lady Wisdom, is calling human beings back to the life for which he created them, a piece of furniture appears. Very important piece of furniture. And this piece of furniture has been a basic feature of human life across times, across cultures. There have always been, in all times and places and cultures, there has been a gathering place in homes to eat. We call it a table. Obviously, these have taken many different forms. Not always the piece of furniture that you have in your dining room, although this is interesting because I was thinking about the table. In a lot of modern homes, and this is a massive loss, it's interesting that there is no longer a table. There's maybe a little place where there's some stools, but in many, many homes, tables have been moved out of the center. They are basically kind of decorative now. Many modern kitchens and dining rooms don't even have them. They're largely unused, maybe for big, big parties, because now the central piece of furniture is the television, you know. But the table is not the centerpiece of the home anymore. So many young people today might not even quite know what I'm talking about. What is a table? Why does it matter? Well, I want to talk about tables today. And I want to talk about, first of all, what the table tells us about our humanity, about our humanness. Two things the table tells us about our humanness. And then I want to talk just at the end about how the table features in our mission as Christians. So let's think about what the table, hopefully you've got one in your home. You certainly sit at them at restaurants or whatever. At the table, what does it tell us about our humanness? And it tells us two things about our humanness, and I want to start with the most obvious by mentioning the most obvious thing at a table. What is the most obvious thing that shows up at a table? Don't overthink it. Say again? Food. Yes, very good. It's food. But it's interesting. It is not necessarily just food. It's a meal which is prepared food. I mean, I'm hoping that you don't, when you serve dinner in your household, just throw a giant bag of carrots and a slab of meat on the table. Usually there's some preparation that goes into it because this is food, but it's food prepared, which is important. And the first thing that tables then tell us about our humanness, starting just with the food, is that we are, this is deeply biblical, we are creatures of appetite. If Every time you look at a table spread with good things to eat, you're being reminded of the biblical truth that you and I were our creatures of appetite. We're actually made with appetites. It's often remarked upon in early Genesis that creation was designed as a three-story house. The heavens, middle earth, the waters under the earth. And right away, it's interesting, as soon as God makes Adam and Eve, he shows his human children where the cupboards are. There's this line, as soon as he starts talking to them, where he says, I've given you every plant... You shall have them for food. You know, here's the cupboards in this new home that I've made for you. And then, of course, in chapter 2, we get even homier because it's not just the whole world. It's a garden, a garden temple, a home where God is going to dwell with his children. And you notice there in those readings that we read from Genesis that this is a home that has an overflowing table. I'm often struck by the fact that the beginning of verse 16 doesn't get the kind of airtime that verse 17 does. Everyone knows verse 17. You know, you're not supposed to eat of that tree. But nobody ever talks about the fact that God opens up by saying, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. Like the opening line is, you know, look at the table I've spread. Look at the food here. God wants his children to eat. And then interestingly here in Proverbs 9, in Lady Wisdom's house, you notice in verse 3, Come eat of my bread. Come drink of the wine I've mingled. There's bread for strength. There's 
wine here for joy. And God, from Genesis to Proverbs on into the New Testament, you see God addresses us as creatures of appetite, creatures who, who need, who hunger, who thirst, who want, who desire. That's how we were made. And, and, and so by God's design, we're creatures of appetite, which means that we are dependent and desiring. I want to sort of talk about two dimensions of this creatures of appetite idea. We are dependent and we're desiring. We're dependent creatures. We're creatures of appetite. That means we're dependent. Because if you think about it, among the biological realities that human beings never rise above, this is true no matter how rich you are, no matter how famous you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter what your social status is, all classes, all peoples, all cultures, all times, all places, everyone needs nourishment. Everyone is dependent on nourishment. You never rise above that. There's no like pill you can take where now you never have to eat again. We are dependent creatures, and what that means is that every few hours, you have a biological invitation in your body to supplicate, give us this day our daily bread, and to be grateful because God gives it to you. Every single time you feel hunger, that's a call to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Remember that you need God and his provision. And every time you taste something, it tastes good. I got to tell you, this was the thing that COVID did for me. Those few days, thank God they weren't more than that one. Every single thing I put in my mouth tasted like a piece of sheet metal. Made me so thankful for the fact that I had, you know, have taste buds that function. And there's gratitude for the fact that God gave this to me and I need it all the time. It's an invitation, our dependence. And the table reminds us we are dependent creatures of appetite. And every table recalls for us the really quite awesome earth-to-table process, which is just a study in God's love and what we call his providence to, to create seed and out of seed create harvest and out of harvest create you know, all this stuff and give people the ingenuity to make stuff out of wheat and, and grapes and, and you know, all the stuff of you know, fruits and vegetables and all of this. You, you know, th- this whole process from, from the, the soil to your table. I mean, it's just appalling how little we understand this now. I've, I've told you this times without number, the story about those kids who came up you know, back when I was living in farm country upstate. They came up from Brooklyn and they wouldn't drink the milk because it came from a cow. Because everyone knows safe milk comes in a box in a grocery store. And because all of us now spend most of our time in man-made worlds rather than in the world that God made, we are very, very detached from this earth-to-table process in which the care of God for his creation is visible. And, of course, in Scripture, it is just celebrated. We are dependent creatures. And, And our dependence, every few hours, invites us to just rejoice and to participate in all the art and the science between the earth and the table at which we're eating, which is why food has been a staple in every culture. But it's interesting, you can see already, we're not just dependent then, we're also desiring creatures. Being creatures of appetite means we don't just depend on food, we desire, we have appetites and wants. You feel this even in your basic hunger for food. There's nothing more basic than your need for nourishment. But already in that basic animal hunger for food, there's a desire for something more than just bare nourishment, isn't there? I mean, we humans do not eat just to survive. One of the saddest specimens of humanity I meet is someone who says, I only eat because I have to. For me, food is fuel. And I just want to say, then you are lame. Because real humans love food. They enjoy food. There's desire. And so even in the most animal appetite of our creatureliness, human beings aren't just dependent. We image 
God's own joy in the good of good things. It's right there in our hunger, our wanting even for food. Every good gift, James says, is from above. And God made us to desire those good gifts because they're good. Not just to subsist, not just to stay alive, but to desire all of God's good gifts because of just joy in the good. God takes joy in the good. We should take joy in the good. We should enjoy the gifts of God. And so the sunbeams of God's love and kindness and favor in all that he's made, those sunbeams are actually reflected like a mirror in human drives and passions and even emotions that were made to answer to God's love and goodness. That's what it means to be a desiring creature, not just for food, but all good things. And yet, even as God's joy in all that he has made does not terminate on those things he has made, God's joy in his works is ultimately joy in himself, the overflowing fountain of life. So it is with us. God made us to worship, not the sunbeams, not the gifts, but to worship the one who is the very source and fountain and originator of all of this goodness. That's what it means to be a dependent, desiring creature of appetite. But already we are moving now toward a second thing at the table. So the first thing is the food. And the food tells us we are creatures of appetite. Every table, every experience of hunger reminds us of that. But there's a second thing at the table. And with this second thing, there's a second lesson about our humanness. Because what's the other thing at a table, at a meal? People. Before I tell you what the second lesson is, the second thing that tables teach us about our humanity, let me just talk about that second thing that's at the table. Tables are not just places to pile food. Tables are social. They're places of socializing. We gather around the food. And it is not just the preparation of the food that makes this a meal. It's the gathering of us around the food that we prepared that makes this a true meal. And so the table then brings us not into contact just with food and prepared food and delightful food. It brings us into a living ecosystem of relations. The person sitting next to me, the person sitting across from me, and there are no charging stations at a good table because you're not supposed to be charging your device. You're supposed to be connected to these people, not least... The host. Because at a table, someone set this table. Someone prepared this table before me. And that is what Proverbs 9 is about. And I want to just kind of go meta for one second here. And I want you to think about the living ecosystem of social relations at a table, especially with the host, the one who set, prepared the table. I want you to just think about something that Proverbs 9 tells us in these two ladies we heard from. Lady Wisdom, Mistress Folly. For you who are young especially, beloved, there are a lot of tables in this world. There are a lot of very enticing spreads of of delightful things, at least enticing things. There are a lot of providers. Interesting we use that word provider. A lot of hosts in this world. But what Proverbs 9 tells us in the two ladies is that behind all of these tables, all of these spreads, all of these hosts and providers, there are two and only two invisible hosts. You don't hear their voices with your ears. You don't see them with your eyes, but they are there. 
And these hosts, invisible hosts, they are calling you, they're inviting you, every table you encounter, every spread you encounter, every human earthly provider host you encounter, through those things, these two voices are calling to you, these two invisible hosts are calling to you, bring your desires to me. You see this good thing? You see this thing that entices you? I am calling you, saying, bring your desires to me. Who are these two invisible hosts? One is the host of the world, the father of all creation, at whose table, he's depicted here as Lady Wisdom, we can learn to use and to savor and to delight in and to deploy every gift of his creation as his children. God is calling you through creation. God is summoning you through his world and all things. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness that it contains. And God is summoning his creatures by his goodness to them to behold his glory and to bring their desires to him. That's one voice. That's the voice of God's lady wisdom, the Father's own voice. And the other voice, speaking through these various tables and spreads, is the voice of Mistress Folly, whose bread whose bread, if you notice, in verse 17 of Proverbs 9, her bread is stolen. That is an all-important description. Stolen water is sweet. Bread eaten in secret because you stole it, it is pleasant. And Lady Mistress Folly's invitation is to get bread at the cost of disobedience. The bread at her table is obtained through sinning against your father. And this is the second thing the tables teach us. Not only that we are creatures of appetite, but that appetites without God's wisdom are ruinous. The people who hear Mistress Folly calling do not know that her guests are already dead. They are in the depths of Sheol, the place of the dead. So every table should be social. It is social. Tables are designed to be social. But they are intended by God. Every table in the world where you find enticements, where you want to sit down and partake, every table is intended to be a place where we socialize, above all, with God himself. That's the, that's the message of Lady Wisdom. In every table you enjoy, fellowship with me. Socialize with me. And the constant enticement of sin, on the other hand, is at all of these tables, with all of these spreads, you eat, you drink, you indulge away from the presence of of the Lord. Act as if God is not the host. Act as if we do not need to hear his voice to enjoy this. We do not need to hear his voice to use this well. We are our own. This is ours. This sex is ours. This drink is ours. This you know, this beautiful creation that we are happening to look upon is just ours to indulge in with no thought of God. I mean, isn't this just Genesis 3? Isn't it just a serpent? This is just, it's, the, the, the voice of Mistress Folly is approach the tables of the world as orphans, not as God's children. Orphans steal because they're desperate. They don't have a father. Children know their father and everything's better with father. And scripture warns us over and over of appetites that lead us. Interestingly, they're often not appetites for evil things in themselves, 
But these appetites lead us away from God. That's the problem. That's the voice of Mistress Folly. Lusts of the body, the flesh. Lusts of the eyes. Lusts for what makes inflates your ego and fills you with pride because of your status. And what does John tell us about these lusts of the flesh and lusts of the eyes and lusts of pride? They are not of the what? They are not of the Father, but of the world that flees the Father. The world of orphans, the world of cosmic traitors and rebels. That's the problem. Mistress Folly is enticing us to take what God has forbidden. The Father says no. We say yes. That's Mistress Folly. But it's even more subtle than just taking what the Father has forbidden. It's, it's also the temptation, again, away from the presence of the Lord, to trust in what the Father has given rather than in the giver himself. Do you ever find that going on in your heart and life? Not so much that you're being tempted to grab what God has said no to, but your heart is beginning to find that it wants to rest in the gift instead of being drawn to the Father who is the giver. In a very interesting passage where she's commenting on 1 Timothy 6.10, which speaks of the love of money, the appetite for money that is the root of all kinds of evil. Listen to what Rebecca DeYoung says. She says, material wealth, the things at tables. Material wealth allures us because it gives us the illusion that we are self-sufficient and therefore serves as a powerful incentive to deny our need for God. Who among us would turn down the chance to make ourselves comfortable and secure in this world. <laughs> I want security. I want comfort. I want to be settled. I want to feel at peace. And if you're finding that in things that your heart loves and longs for, rather than in the hands of God, you are a worshiper of an idol. And Mistress Folly is in your ear. Not that the thing itself is wrong, but if your heart trusts in that gift instead of the giver, you are living like an orphan, is what Scripture tells us. It is that appetite that pulls you away from the Father that's the root of all evils. Jesus said it is possible to lead a life in which the cares and pleasures and treasures that your heart longs for have choked the word of God. Is there something wrong with the cares and the pleasures and the treasures of this world? Are they wicked in themselves? Has God made any evil thing? It's not the things that are evil, unless the Father has explicitly forbidden them. But when the word is choked by desires for even good things, Rebecca DeYoung asks a very painful question. I'd like to ask you guys this today. She says, do, do this thought experiment for a moment. If the only thing, someone came from outer space, and the only thing they knew about you, the only access they had to who you are, was your financial records and your spending habits. They could look at your credit card records. Look at your bank records. The only access they have to you is what you spend. Here's the question. What evidence would there be that God is your chief end? God is your chief love. If that's all they've got. What you lust for. Jesus said where your treasure is, there's your heart. let alone how appetites can not only draw us away from the Father, which is strange because they're his gifts. <laughs> he is the host at every table. He doesn't want us to have 
He doesn't want us to be deprived of good things. He wants us to be grateful, to have them with him, in fellowship with him, let alone how appetites can lure us to put self above other people, to not only sin against our ultimate host at the table, but to even sin against our fellow guests at the table. There's a beautiful story, again, this is from from Rebecca de Young. She tells the story of a Nigerian family. They had an interesting custom to help you think about how your appetites are leading you maybe to mistreat other people. They had a big family, and the eldest child was always served first at the table. The eldest child would always get the first big plate of food. There was just one little caveat. If any of the younger children finished and were still hungry, they would receive from the older child's plate. So you can have a huge portion from the father, but you remember there's little people here, and if they need more, it's coming from your plate. Fantastic ritual to teach us to think about whether our appetites are causing us to run roughshod over those who are in need, and we are our brother's keeper. It is interesting that Jesus told us to observe a meal together until he comes, to sit at a table together until he comes. And Paul warns the Corinthians they are calling down God's chastening by indulging their appetites at the table in a way that dishonors, he says, the body of their Lord. The body, what body? Well, is it actually honoring Christ's body, his literal body, flesh and blood, given for me on the cross? Is it honoring that body given for me if I run in and seize it greedily as if it's my own? You know, these rich Corinthians sort of elbowing people out of the way to come and get drunk and just, you know, feast themselves, feast their appetites at the table. Are you honoring the fact that this is a gift? that you obviously don't deserve. It's just a free gift. And is it honoring the corporate body here? Not just the body of Jesus, the literal body given for you, but the body, the body. Look around. There's a body here, including poor people who maybe get here late because they had to work. Is it honoring the body to just seize this food, this drink gluttonously, rather than serving each other in love? Where's your table manners, Paul says? Learn the wisdom of God because appetites without God's wisdom, are ruinous. Far more briefly, how do tables feature in our mission? They teach us about our humanness, that we are creatures of appetite, and appetites without wisdom are ruinous. But what, how do table, the table, how does it feature in our mission? I wonder, God willing, I'm going to start preaching through Luke and Acts not too long in the future. I wonder, as I read through the Gospels, why there's so many feasts in Jesus' ministry. Why so many public feasts of the Jews? Why so many private feasts in homes? Why is a table a central image of the coming of Messiah's kingdom? My thesis is this. Serious Christianity is serious about tables. In Jesus' mission, the table was a big deal. In Christian mission now in the world, that he has, now that he is with the Father... We are serious about tables. I want to call us as a church. There are actually a few things closer to my heart as a pastor. Not that, that should make it close to yours, but I think, it's, I think this is a biblical thing that beats in my heart. I want to call us to re-centralize our tables in our Christian mission as a church. Because every one of our tables, and I'm almost done, every one of our tables is two things. Number one, every one of our tables as Christians is a site of grateful resistance. 
a site of grateful resistance. I hear a lot of talk among Christians nowadays about how, as our society has become more and more absorbed with everything immediate and that gratifies and has lost this idea of God's transcendence, holy things, something beyond us that is over us, that, you know, we're just so... I hear a lot of Christians talk about how, as that has happened, modern life has become increasingly machine-like. And I just hear a lot of talk about this. You know, it feels like we're living in this kind of machine-like world where it's just everything is more faster. And we're just, you know, it's kind of exhausting and overwhelming. And it just feels like we're all kind of stretched thin all the time. It's just this machine-like feel. Can I ask you guys a question? To the extent that you feel that, I know you do because you tell me, and I feel it too. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? May I point out something that's blindingly obvious, but machines do not eat. Machines do not feast. Machines never invite a guest. Machines never share a meal. Machines never worship. If you want an act of resistance to the godless rush of our modern world, always more faster. There is no more accessible act of resistance than just every time you feel hunger. I'm speaking to myself here because I'm terrible at this. Stop. You know, this whole idea, I'm going to pop a power bar. Do not pop a power bar. Stop. And give hearty thanks for your food. My father prepared this table before me in the presence of my enemies. He is the host of this little, even if it is a power bar, God, God created this power bar. God created the stuff that made this power bar possible. Stop, give hearty thanks, and if at all possible, stop wherever you are and see if there's somebody you can share that meal with. That's resistance. And if in your daily work life you just can't pull that off, then by all means, pull that off sometime in your schedule. If at all possible, stop Give thanks and share because that is resistance and it's not hard. But if we can't do that, I'm going to say this, the machine's going to win. It's already winning. Secondly, our every table as Christians is not just a site of grateful resistance. It is also a school of formation and friendship. A school of formation and friendship. Families, do not lose your tables. Make your meals a priority. There is no more basic place of training in your home than your table. Have your little people as they grow up anticipate through practice that table times are times and places in which wisdom is exchanged. Where we ask each other questions. Where we ask a question nobody is thinking about, but somebody thought of it, and we're going to think about it together. And we're going to think together. And we're going to really listen to each other. And we're going to work through the differences and work through the quarrels that erupt and work through just pondering things together and reflecting on things together, maybe watching even something together at the table. But take some time so your children, and as they get older, they'll actually come to love it, where there's an expectation that we have a school at our table of formation. You know, John's famous line, every moment is a teachable moment. Every table is a teachable table. And I'd like you to think about the fact that that school of formation has the power to extend the influence of Jesus' kingdom way beyond our families. Although if it's not happening there, I don't know how on earth it's going to happen anywhere else. 
I would like to suggest to you that hospitality is an antidote. It is perhaps the antidote to the social fractures that we're all so concerned about in our society today. Do you want to be a contributor to healing our society? Learn to practice hospitality. Every table is a school of friendship. And I was just reflecting. I had a sister and I were talking recently, and she she gave me just a mind-blowing insight about how hospitality could change things in this world. You know, you, you can see right now that there are such fractures developing along class lines in, in our society. You know, sometimes it's racial classes, you know, oppressor, oppressed classes. Sometimes it's economic classes. Sometimes it's political classes. You know, groups, conglomerates of people, tribes or whatever. And they're just, you know, you can see the fractures. This is just very obvious as you look around. And she and I were reflecting on, the, there's a problem, though, as you try to, you know, in the body of Christ, try to integrate these things and bring them together. And here's the problem. It's the problem of what we, I could call tokenism, where I'm going to reach out to you because you are in that class. I'm going to love on you because you're poor. You should come and spend time with us because you belong to that class that we're trying to, you know, we're trying to have cross-cultural ministry here. And the problem is people on the receiving end of that end up feeling like is the only reason I'm loved because I'm a token for my class. I'm a stand-in for this group you're trying to, you know, get cozy with because, you know, that's how respectable Christians act. Is it a, you love me? Are you interested in me? I actually had some painful conversations with people along these lines. And this sister just dropped this sort of atom bomb on the playground of my mind. She said, you know, the thing that would take away all that tokenizing and allow the church to integrate and reconcile through these fractures is to be a hospitable community way upstream from all that where you're just into hospitality across the board. You're just practicing it with everybody all the time. You're actively welcoming everyone the Lord sends to your doors. You're actively loving on all of them for Jesus' sake. And so, you know, if you walk in the door and you're part of a particular class, we're not singling you out because we just love on people. We want people at our table, all of them, all the time, whoever the Lord sends. I would argue that failure of integration in the church, whether it's racial or otherwise, that's just a failure of hospitality way upstream from those issues. If you're a church that is just profoundly, aggressively hospitable, then it doesn't matter who the Lord sends. You're not tokenizing anybody. Come one, come all, because we don't see a token of a class and we see you. We see a friend. My hope for Trinity Church, if I may indulge a moment of personal privilege, is that at some point in the not-too-distant future, there will not be a single Sunday when someone here does not have a pot of soup ready to welcome the guests the Lord sends us. I'd like no one to ever walk out of this church again having visited us without an invitation to just come and share a meal. That'd be my goal for Trinity. Because that's a church that's on mission for Jesus. And it's a very good check on our own hearts, a reminder that Jesus gives his people resources for relationships you got stuff you got money you know why jesus gave it to you for relationships not to hoard it not to secure yourself not to supply your endless comforts and indulgences god gave you resources for relationships that's the heart of jesus that's the heart of the hospitable people who minister in his name so no jesus have christianity here beloved whether you eat or drink or whatever you do let's do it all to the glory of god amen Fill us with your own heart, Father, in Jesus we pray.